Which song? Uh, 16. 16. Sorry. I didn't say that clear. Okay, Psalm 16, chapter 1, chap, Psalms chapter 16, verse 1. It says, uh, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast, unto, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied, their, that hasten after another God. Another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up the names unto them, unto my lips. Their names unto my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup that maintaineth my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord uh, always before me because he is at my right hand, and I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you this morning for the opportunity to come before you to pray, uh, Lord, and to uh, to read through this passage of scripture, Lord. And we start off, preserve me, Lord. What a what a, a plea um, for all of us, Lord, that we would be preserved uh, in uh, uh, we, we are preserved in your in your power, Lord. And we thank you for that. And uh, Lord, we just want to pray for uh, Bob Klein. And uh, Mindy, uh, Jeremy's sister, and, uh, and the Arnies, Lord, we, and, the, and the Vulcans, Lord. We just lift all those up to you and just ask you to move in their life, Lord. We pray, Father, especially for Gwen, uh, Lord, that you would uh, uh, remove the pain from him, heal his body, help him to, um, to be restored, uh, Lord, Father. And I do pray, Lord, you put your arm around uh, Gwen and Betty and their whole family. And just uh, show yourself, Lord, and be present in their life that they may lean hard on you. And, uh, and Father, we want to pray for this, this passage as we studied out today, that you would guide us and direct us and help us to be able to, to uh, apply it in our own lives. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, your word says, your word says, um, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my, my Lord. Father, uh, please thank you that we can call you Lord, that um, you sent Jesus, that we can uh, have eternal life. And uh, our, our goodness doesn't Go beyond you, Lord. Goodness comes from you, and Lord, we just uh, praise you that we can walk with life, we can walk in truth, and we can walk by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would uh, just use us to be uh, salt and light, uh, to be a blessing first and foremost to you and to others uh, until <coughs> the day when when you come forth.
Lord, just help us to always, always keep us, uh, keep you uh, directly before us, Lord, so that you are at our right hand and, and that we are not moved from that path. Lord, help us to, to just keep looking to you for all our needs and uh, just thank you for all your blessings, Lord. Thank you for this day. Father, as we conclude our prayer time this morning, we're just thankful for passages like this that remind us, Lord, how we have a relationship with you. Uh, as David has written here, Lord, that um, uh, that you are uh, his Lord and you are his his uh, his God, and we thank you for that because you are the same. That's that's who you are for us uh, as well, Lord, and we're thankful that we have that kind of relationship. We pray now, Lord, that you would speak to us through our hearts, that you would. Uh, Help those that are on our prayer list that we didn't even mention, Lord. There's a, a, a long list of, of people's names that are on our church-wide prayer list, so we pray for them as well, Lord. And just ask you to bless today. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine, uh, which reminds us of the brightness of your Son, Jesus Christ, in our life. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so we're in Psalm chapter 16, so let me just kind of tell you how we got here. A couple of weeks ago, we finished 2 Corinthians. Um, uh, I don't remember, I think it was two weeks, two Sundays ago. Uh, um, and um, um, yeah, I think it was, well, in any case, whatever it was, I finished it up. And then um, uh, Jeremy filled in for me one weekend. And then we had, uh, I think we had, I don't remember now. Was it that or the fifth? It was last. Okay, so anyway, we missed a couple of weeks. Um, but, um, I've been praying for, for several weeks, probably longer than that, trying to figure out, okay, because, you know, when you know you're coming to the end of a study, when you see the, you turn the page and you see you're coming to one of the last few chapters, and so you kind of know that you're approaching that. So the question is always, well, where do you go next? What are you going to do next? And so um, I've been praying, and God hasn't been answering, right? And it's because I'm not listening, I don't know. But um, So I'm, I'm, I have a couple of, thoughts, and I haven't really had peace about any one of them yet, whether it's a book study in the Old Testament or a book study in the New Testament or a topical study. Uh, I like doing all of those. I just don't know yet what to do. And uh, to be really frank with you, sometimes trying to put these studies together for me right now is kind of, it's hard. And so I'm looking for something that's a little bit easier. And so I said, well, let me go back into the book of Psalms. I don't know that anybody was that's here right now was in the class, the real life class, the, when we started the real life class, which was back in 2009. Okay, so we started in the book of Psalms. So I just said, let's just go real life, and just, life is real in the Psalms, so that's what we did. And so I just thought, well, let's, let, me, um, let me just go back and look at some Psalms that address a, a unique converse, a discussion, a topic. Uh, especially because over the last two weeks I've been teaching on Wednesday nights, teaching about the preservation of, of Scripture, and uh, I made a point both nights that um, that you can be assured of the preservation of the Word of God because you're assured of the preservation of your soul. And so that just kind of made me think, you know, let's just go back and look and find some, you know, look into and kind of address the concept of preservation. As you saw in verse 1, the first thing that David writes is, Preserve me, O God. That's a call that we all have to God. We're always, I mean, not that we, you know, we don't need to do that every day, but that when you got saved, that's basically what you're saying. Preserve me. Save me. Give me eternal life, and so on. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at the, the, the Psalms that address the unique subject of preservation. And uh, the last time, as we, like I said, I mean, we did this was in 2009. There are actually six psalms that we're going to look at. Chapter 16 is the first one. And um, I don't know how your Bible is structured, but uh, right above verse 1, there's a little bitty print um, in, that's a more, most like a, I don't know what you would call that, a prelude, pre-something, pre-script. It says the word mictum of David. Does your Bible say a mictum of David? Okay. Well, there are actually six six psalms that are mictums of, of David, and I have them listed in your notes. So Psalm 16, and just to give you a quick overview of what they, what they represent. 
and where we're going. Psalm 16 focuses on the promise of preservation. So we have a promise in our preservation. God made a promise to David, and that's what chapter 16 is about. We're going to dig into that. Psalm chapter 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60, they kind of run in sequence after that. 56 deals with the power of preservation. Chapter 57 deals with the permanence of preservation. Chapter 58 deals with the justice of our, of our preservation. 59 defends our preservation, and 60 is our rest in preservation. So we're, basically that's what we're going to look at over the next six weeks while I try to get with God and figure out what he wants me to do uh, going forward. And so, so, so the word mictum, uh, it, means, it basically means to cut in or to engrave uh, so that the psalm title means to make it permanent. Basically, the word mictum is to make it permanent. Um, and so a mictum means to cut or to, or to make permanent, and we have those listed, each one of those that are listed. So your salvation, just with the title, you can be rest, you rest assured that your, your, your preservation, your preservation is permanent. Uh, if, if anything, you know, there are a lot of churches and denominations that teach you can lose your salvation, which would make it temporary. The difference between being permanent and being temporary is permanent, it doesn't go away. Temporary means it will go away. Not can, but will. It will go away. Temporary is temporary. And so uh, we have the promise of the uh, of, of permanent preservation in the, in the mictum. Uh, passages here. I don't know, a lot of times people don't pay attention to all that little bit of fine print at the top and at the bottom of, their, of, of the chapters. Um, but the, even in the New Testament, you know, it was like, this written by so-and-so uh, in such-and-such such a city, delivered by his hand, and so on, things like that. <clears throat> Those are historically valuable little comments that are not God's word, but they are historically valuable for us to help place that, that passage that we've been studying. The, same, the, the other thing about uh, Psalm 16, which is unique, is that Psalm 16 is also called a Messianic Psalm. That's M-E-S-S-I-A-N-I-C, Messianic Psalm. Uh, and a Messianic Psalm is one that makes reference to the Messiah. It makes reference to the Messiah. Uh, so basically what that means is that the writing of this passage... Uh, is prophetic in that it speaks of Christ. And we'll, we'll look at it here shortly, but in this, there are three verses in this chapter that are actually quoted by the Apostle Peter in, in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching. And uh, we'll talk about that. We'll get a little bit closer to it. <clears throat> but uh, so the topic of the, of the Psalms deal with a lot of, a lot of subjects. Somewhere in the Psalms, though, we have a glimpse of the Messiah to come. That's what that's what these Messianic Psalms, and I don't remember right off the top of my head how many Messianic Psalms. I've seen lists of anywhere from 11 to 15, 16, 17 of them that uh, somehow reference. You know, Psalm 22 is a good one to remember. We won't, we won't go through Psalm 22, but that, uh, that's a picture of Christ when he's actually hanging on the cross before he dies. Uh, so anyway, the title of a victim of David represents some of David's very personal thoughts, which which and he, he so the thinking is that he actually carved his you know he wrote the song and then he carved it in stone. He made it permanent in stone. That's where we get the word victim. And so so he etched it in stone, making it permanent. Um, they're considered very personal psalms written by David, expressing some of his deepest desires. Uh, I, I'm not that kind of a person where I would, you know, some people can write a poem, you know, and express themselves in a poem. I can't do that. Uh, I think I've written two poems my entire life, and um, uh, I've never written a song. But that's what songs are as well. Songs are, you know, somebody's personal, uh, emotional feeling about a subject, they'll write a song. Uh, or a poem, or something like. Or sometimes I would even write a whole book. I don't know. But but David writes these songs, and so they're 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 really David's heartbeat for things. And um, so uh, these songs, like I said, are considered very personal, and they express some of his deepest desires and the ones he supposedly meditated on regularly. Uh, 
uh, when he's, you know, wherever he might have been. So as we read through it, we'll quickly see some of the, and this, this is a good way to notice how it's pointed. I just, you know, I haven't used this Bible in a long time, but I just, I realized as I, we were reading chapter 16, that I had circled all of the my, the word my, M-Y, uh, in the passage, and the I, the letter I, personal pronouns. He, uh, he uses the word my 14 times in this chapter in 11 verses. So almost every verse has at least one time where he says the word my. And he uses the word I six times. So you can tell that how it's very personal it is uh, just in the way he's, he's worded it. So just for example... Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extended not to thee. So that's just verse 1. And so it's very personal in that, in that passage uh, there. Um, so we don't, uh, we don't know when he wrote this. We don't know what was the circumstances when he wrote it. I think it probably, well, pretty obvious. It was sometime between First and Second Samuel. It could have been when he was running from Saul in 1 Samuel, or when God made the covenant of the kingdom with him in 2 Samuel, or, he, or after he, he sinned with Bathsheba. You know, he's like, okay, I messed up. Oh, preserve me. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a legitimate cry to, that we would make, right? Okay, God, I messed up. I'm in, I sinned, but please preserve me. Please keep me. Please save me. You know, when you think about God saying to David, uh, you have the, the sure mercies of David. And, um, and so he, he answered that prayer. Um, so at the same time, some of these psalms, in, psalms indicate an event surrounding the writing of them. Now if you, if you look at um, uh, other, other chapters, other, other psalms, uh, it'll tell you that this was such and such was happening. Um, and I, don't, I had a, one I was going to turn you to, but I don't remember what it was, but that little uh, superscript of, above each of the chapters generally gives some idea of when it was written or why it was written or to who it was written and so on. But anyway, uh, what we're going to see in this chapter, in chapter 16, we're going to see two things. First is verses 1 to 8, we're going to see the case for preservation. And in verses 9 to 11, we're going to see the promise of, of preservation. Uh, so David's calling out, he's making a case that he should be preserved to God. And, uh, and then God says, that's okay, I, I promise your, your preservation. So verses 1 to 8, just like that, making a case for preservation. So at the beginning we see the reason for the psalm. David is asking to be preserved, and it is a desire that each of us have, and we sometimes try to work out our own preservation, don't we? I mean, was, and, until, you, until you finally come to the point where you're like, i got to ask God for my, own, my preservation, i gotta, I got to turn to Him for it, because... I can't preserve myself in the works that I attempt to do. So he, so finally, he, he turned to God. Um, so the word preserve, very simple word. It means to keep, to guard, to watch over, uh, to, to make it last. And so many times the word gives us, the word that gives us the word preserve, the Hebrew word for preserve, is translate, translated in other places in the Bible as to keep or to observe. To keep or to observe. So he's saying, hey, keep me, God. And so he is. He's just, that's what the promise is ultimately going to be. The implication is on all of this is that David was in some sort of imminent danger. That's why he's calling out for that. He's in imminent danger. So if you look at verse 10, you'll see what that danger is. Look down to verse 10. Verse 10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now this is coming from David when he writes it. Now that's a prophetic verse, and we'll talk about that later. But he's he's saying, keep uh, thou will not leave my soul in hell. His his fear was that he was that he was going to be separated from God for eternity for something that he had done or something that was going on in his life. We don't really know what it was specifically. We have, as I said, uh, some some ideas, but. But in whatever it was, David was in, felt like he was in imminent danger of being separated from God forever. And he said, I don't want to go to hell. I got, you know, that's a good argument for people who need to get saved, right? Um, you know, you're a sinner, uh, and sinners are destined to hell. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. And uh, said, but you can make your way out of there. Just ask God for preservation. 
or salvation, as we would like to say it. And so anyway, David's making the case for his, his preservation. He's describing the completeness of his relationship um, uh, with God. And it's really amazing, these first few verses, how he does that. So what David has, and what we should seek after, what you and I should seek after, is the kind of relationship that David has with God. And it's described in these first few verses here. Um, we should have we should have more than what we what I would call a one dimensional or a two dimensional uh, view of God. So a one dimensional would be yes, I have a Bible. That would be a one dimensional view of God. I have a Bible. A two two dimensional view of, of God would be yes, I have a Bible, and sometimes I touch it. I mean, I mean, this, we got to go beyond that. David is actually wanting to go beyond just knowing that he has the Word of God, and then he could touch the Word of God. He wants to do something else. And so David has a complete and complex relationship that we make, that we should seek after with God. And it is this relationship that David based his entire desire to be preserved. Remember what Paul wrote, if you don't have to turn here, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse, 30, verse 18, Paul wrote this, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me, unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So that, that idea of preserving, even, even Paul said that God will preserve us. And so David's relationship can be described in this way. First, in verse 1, um, oh, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. So the first thing is that David, uh, David, David trusted in God. Now this is really interesting how this works out here. He, now, it says in God, I preserve me, O God, for I, in thee do I put my trust. So he's trusting in, in God, but it's not just God. I mean, it is God, but it's different. It's, so it's capital G, lowercase o-d, God. That actually in Hebrew is, uh, is El, the name El. If you've studied out the names of God in the Bible, you'll realize that, that he has probably, I don't know, 16, 18 different names different ways of describing the, the same per, the same Godhead. And so El is normally is translated as El Shaddai. But in this case, in particular, if you break out your, your strong concordance and look at the word God in this verse, it, it won't say El Shaddai, it'll say El. The difference is El Shaddai is the creator God. El Shaddai is the creator God. But El, El is the mighty God. So he's saying, I trust in the mighty God. Not just in the creator God. So there's a lot of people in the world today that, that don't believe in evolution. They'll think, yeah, God, God probably created it. Uh, but I, mean, I don't care about God. I, mean, I don't have time for God. That, that, would be a, that would be somebody who's El Shaddai, as I believe in the creator God. But David is saying here, I believe in the God, the almighty God. Um, El is El E L is the short form of Elohim, um, and I said I just said what did I say? I didn't say you Elohim. Said El I said El Shaddai. I'm sorry. I meant Elohim. Let me go back up to that. Elohim. So while Elohim is the name of the Creator and the covenant God is El, it gives you a sense that all created, all the Almighty God, the omnipotent God, the All Powerful. So let me just kind of give you an example. Go back to Genesis chapter 17, verse one. talking about when Abram um, was uh, being um, spoken to by God. He says, And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. That, that phrase, the Almighty God, that is, that is translated as the word El. And so that's El. Hey, Randy. Yes. In Isaiah... Nine, verse um, six. It just calls him 
wonderful counselor, the mighty God. So would that still be Almighty God? Yeah, the, the mighty God, Almighty God, same. Same, pretty much the same thing. Okay. That's our that's our English language for you. <laughs> you know. Um, so David trusts in the Almighty God, not in the Creator God. So he's he's because uh, the Creator created, but the Creator is a different different aspect of God who's maintaining uh, the power to keep keep people alive. So in verse 2, he goes on. He says, let's go back to Psalm 16, verse 2. He said, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, and notice that the Lord is all capital, L-O-R-D is all capital. Thou art my Lord, notice L, capital, O-R-D is not capital. My goodness extendeth not to thee. Now we'll get to that phrase here in just a moment. So in verse 2, David is saying that his soul, the word L-O-R-D, capital, is the name Jehovah. And David is saying that his, that his soul is in the hand of Jehovah, his Lord. Jehovah means the God of righteousness and judgment. Jehovah is the God of righteousness and judgment. Now you can see that, that comparison in and we won't take the time to turn back there. Well, let's do that. Go back to Genesis 2, 4. This is the first time, in Genesis 2, 4, this is the first time God issued a command to man, giving him instruction on being righteous. He says in verse 4, Thou art, These are the generations of heaven and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it. For, God the Lord, for, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist. And then so on down through here, he, he um, in the rest of this chapter, you know, he, he uh, establishes man, gives him a command to keep the garden of, of Eden and till it. And, uh, and so that's the first command. And in chapter 6, verse 5, this is the first time God judges man's rebellion. And God saw that the wickedness of man was, was great in the earth and that every... every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil and continual. And it repented that the Lord that he made a man on earth and it grieved him in his, at his heart. And the Lord said, you notice this all capital L-O-R-D, and the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing. So that's the first judgment. So judge, justice and, and uh, righteousness are, are related to Jehovah, L-O-R-D, capital. But go back to chapter 16 of Psalms again, and notice, as I pointed out, so it, there's there's two lords in verse two. There's L O R D capital and there's L capital O R D lowercase. So first he says, thou, thou thou hast my soul thou hast said unto the Lord. My soul said to the Lord, Thou art my Lord, L O R D. So the two different there's two different things here. David was fully aware that God was not just a God of love, but also righteous in the judgment. And so we've looked at the, that this name already we have in the past. And saw that the first first time this name was used was those verses that I mentioned. So David trusts in the Almighty God, and his soul is kept by the righteous Jehovah God. And then David knows that his preservation is found in the judgment and his righteousness. So he declares his trust in God Almighty, and his soul is kept by Jehovah. And then he declares his delight and goodness in, in the L-O-R-D. This is another word for God. This is Adonai. Our master, our so Adonai is, is our master. So, so he's connecting all of the roles of God in David's life. He's he is uh, the mighty God. He he keeps justice and, and judgment, and he is our master. That's the kind of th multi-dimensional, three-dimensional relationship that we need to have uh, with God. Because you can see, verses, verse 2 has both L-O-R-D capital and L-capital-O-R-D lowercase. 
So David expresses here some awesome blessings of being under the leadership and protection of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is an awesome thing when he's talking about being preserved here. Uh, it's not based on what God should do, but how we see ourselves in relation to God. That's kind of what he's talking about here. Most of us see God as our maker. That's not difficult if you believe in creation. We just see God as our maker, but we need to see God as our, as our mediator as well. We need to know that God judges the intents of the hearts of, of, as well as the sin. But where most fail in allowing God to be our ma- is, is allowing God to be our master instead of they see him as a tyrant. A lot of people think God is, is just mean. You know, because a lot of church, a lot of denominations teach that God will strike you dead if you don't obey him. And so that sets up a concept of fear of God. And we do need to fear the Lord, but not like that. We need to have a more of a stronger relationship than that. And this is all summed up in the last phrase of verse 2. When he says, My goodness extendeth not to thee. Now, that's an interesting phrase when you look at it. My goodness extendeth not to thee. So the my, and remember, the my is not God's goodness extending down to David. It's David's extending up to God. So David is saying here, first, he's saying that there is no good in himself. All good comes from God. His, you know, David is saying, my goodness does not extend to where God's... My goodness doesn't reach God's goodness. So if you put them on a scale, God's goodness is here, my goodness is down here. So my goodness doesn't extend to thee. It also could mean that, that good... All that is good comes from God to David. All all that is good comes from God to David. And then he says in verse 4, Their sorrows shall be multiplied, that hasten after another God. So now what he's doing in verse 4, he contrasts his, his own behavior or position with those who live outside of God's precepts. Uh, this is common in most of the Psalms that we've considered, that we've looked at in the past, and you can see as you studied out the Psalms, the contrasting image of what God considers obedient behavior and what is not. So verse 4, this is the problem with people that are not where David is at, so this may be where you're at, so this is the things you need to change. They hasten after other gods, he says. Verse, uh, verse 4, Their sorrows shall be multiplied, they that hasten after another god. A direct rejection of the first commandment. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. And so, this contrasting image of what God considers obedient behavior and what is not, first off, it's not obedient behavior to hasten after other gods. That's, 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 that's a bad behavior. And as I said, it's a direct rejection of the first commandment. Turning to false gods or turning to false idols for preservation instead of the one true God is the best way, to, in fact, to be destroyed. A lot of people put their faith in a carving, in a carved stone or a carved chunk of wood or something, or some sort of a false god where they'll put their, their faith in that, their faith for their own extended survival preservation. But it doesn't work that way. Uh, turning to false gods for preservation instead of the one true God is the best way to be destroyed. Because God will not preserve you if you turn away from him. He says in, uh, turn over to Jeremiah 25. I was going to read a longer passage, but I think I'll just, for the sake of time, we'll just, we'll just read a couple of verses here. Psalm 25, starting in verse 5. They said, Turn ye again now, every one, from his evil way, and from the evil of your doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord hath given unto you and to your fathers forever and ever, and go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them, and provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. And go to verse 8, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land 
and against the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations around about, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and a perpetual desolation. So that's just a warning from God if you turn to a false gods. That's a, that's a brutal thing to think about. So we may be saved. We may be saved and we're going to go to heaven if we're saved. But you know what? We're also not preserved in this life if we're going to, fo- if we're going to spend most of our time or all of our time uh, turned to other gods. And then he also said back in chapter 16. He continues in verse 4 describing some other of their problem. First they hasten after other gods. Then he says their drink offerings of blood will I not offer. So, so there they offer the wrong sacrifices. They offer in the wrong sacrifices. Instead of the blood being a sacrifice, blood becomes the offering. Instead of offering, sacrificing the blood, they offer, they offer the blood as the, sacri- as, the, as the offering. And that is basically flipped around. It's, it's incorrect. In every case, the offering in the, in the Old Testament, the offering was an animal that was killed, and the animal's blood was poured out. It was never drank or never eaten. And so what, Paul, what, what David is saying is, hey, I can't, I can't work with these people. Um, they worship, they hasten to another god, they drink, they drink, off, they drink the offerings of blood, I will not, and I will not offer that. He said, nor, and nor will I take up their names into my lips. I'm not going to do that. So I'll just give you a couple of passages, just as a reminder. In every case, and uh, go back to Leviticus chapter 4. We won't turn there because there are several. I'm just going to give you several. I think they're in the notes. It's listed there, I think. Okay, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 8, verse 25, verse 34, verse 30 and verse 34. Speak about the blood being poured out at the bottom of the altar. And in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 13, even, even animals that are hunted, you don't take their blood. I remember movies, you've probably seen crazy dumb movies like this before, but there was, there was a movie, um, uh, Red Dawn. You know, so it was a good movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially when they drank that blood of that deer, right? Yeah, but it seems pretty realistic. <laughs> yeah. So that's you know that's the kind of thing that you don't do. I mean, I know it's, uh, you got to drink the blood. You got to be you'll never be a real hunter if you don't drink the blood and all that kind of nonsense. I never did that. Um, the idea of thinking, you're just doing that, it's just disgusting. So anyway, um, they offered the wrong sacrifices. In every case, the offering was slain and the blood poured out as the sacrifice is a picture of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ poured out at the cross of Calvary. See, his body was sacrificed, his blood was poured out. And his blood poured out over you if you receive him as Savior. You are washed by his blood. If you drink it, not the same thing. He's got to wash you out, got to cleanse you with that, not just drink it. The eating of the drinking... Eating or drinking of blood is prohibited. And again, Leviticus 17, verses 10 to 11. Um, so real quick. Whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel, of the strangers that sojourn among you, that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life is of, of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Don't drink the blood. Don't eat the blood. And then he, one, last, one more thing in verse 4. He says, um, he, will not, he will have nothing to do with them. That's what he says. He says, I will not say their name. I will not utter their, their name on, on my lips. David takes literally the response to those who refuse to follow after God. You are probably familiar. You may remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, when we were there, chapter 6, verses 16 to 17, which tells us, to come out from among them and be separate. right? Not to be unequally yoked, but to come out from among them and be separate. And David says, I'm, I can't be yoked with these people if they're going to falsely worship the wrong gods and sacrifice the wrong sacrifices and drink the blood that they're not supposed to drink. I will not associate with them. David, uh, God said along the same thing in Exodus 23, verse 13, In all things that I have said to you, be circumspect. 
I mean, pay attention. And make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Don't mention the name of other gods. And he says, don't, and neither let it be heard out of, the, out of thy mouth. And, you know, um, I, don't, I can't remember, thank goodness, uh, after reading this passage here, I can't remember some of the names of some of the gods that are in India. You know, they got like 30 million gods, but they got maybe 10 of the top gods. And I don't remember their names. Not that I cared for their names, but this verse says, don't even mention their name. Don't, don't, don't let it be heard out of thy mouth. So we don't, we don't do, do that. And Joshua, in 20, Joshua 23, verse 7, that ye come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them. Don't have anything to do with other gods. I think God's pretty clear about that. And then in verses 5 to 8, David's portion, he says, is not found in idols or false gods, but in the one true God. So let's just read that real quick. The Lord is the, is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup that maintaineth my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yet I have a good, goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the right night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me, because he hath my, my right hand, I shall not be moved. Okay, so David's portion of all of this is not found in idols or false gods, but he's, his portion is found in the true God. And the Lord is in, this, in his portion, in the inheritance that will come, and the cup from which he flows, he speaks about, flows the refreshment of eternal life. So Christ alone offers us water that will, that will cause us never to thirst again, right? He's who told the lady in, uh, um, in, in John chapter 4, verse 14, that whosoever drinketh the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. And that passes here. So, so our refreshment, our nourishment comes from God. So he's asking from verse 1 to verse 8, he's, he's really petitioning God to preserve him. And God says in verses 9 to 11, you have the promise of eternal preservation. Verse, verse 9 opens with the therefore. Notice verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. And so that therefore... Uh, connects us back to the request in verse 1. And David has heard from God and knows his plea is, uh, for preservation has been, has been committed to him. And you know this, you, you all know this, one of the greatest com comforts that any Christian should be able to claim is the confirmation of their salvation. No matter what happens in your life, if, you, if, you can, if, if, if life is taking a bad turn, whatever that might be, just remember, you have eternal life. You had that, that preservation that you called for on the day that you got saved, it didn't go away, it didn't change, Nothing, nothing's changed. Your preservation is there. You have eternal life, no matter what's going on, no matter what's happening. Without it, several things are off, though. If you don't have that preservation, several things are off. You know what, if, you, if you're not saved, there's no motivation for anything that Christian life offers. I mean, the first thing that we got to get people to do is get saved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then they can have the blessings of being a Christian. They don't get those blessings of being a Christian unless they get saved, unless they have the promise of preservation. And also, there's no confidence in their life of the promises of God regarding eternal life or regarding anything for that matter. So people that aren't saved, they don't have the confidence of the promises of God. They'll doubt God. They'll doubt what He says. They'll challenge what He says. They don't have the confidence in Him. And lastly, they, are, they have no consecration. Uh, there's no consecration in, the, in, in, in God or in themselves to God. So no motivation, no confidence, no consecration because they don't have salvation. So the first thing to notice with all of this about these next verses are that they are quoted by Peter. So just real quick, turn over to Acts chapter 2, verse 25. Acts, 22, Acts chapter 2, verse 25. Now, Acts chapter 2, that's the, the day of Pentecost. I think everybody's familiar with that. That's, um, they're, they're in the uh, upper room, and the, the Holy Spirit comes, and people begin to speak. This is the speaking in tongues scenario. Uh, they're not speaking in tongues. They're speaking in, in a language that they're not accustomed to speaking. 
But other people recognize what was being said. Oh, they're speaking Arabic. Oh, they're speaking Roman. Oh, they're speaking uh, Egyptian or whatever they were. And it's listed, actually listed in, in Acts chapter 2. But anyway, chapter 2, verse 25. Sorry, verse, yeah, 25. We'll go there first. For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also, moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. And then he says in verse 27, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And then uh, while we're here, let's go ahead and read just a couple more verses down. Starting in verse 20, 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he was both he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn unto us with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit in his throne, he seeking he seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul will not be left in hell, neither his flesh to see corruption. That right there, verse uh, 31. He basically, Paul, David, uh, Peter is very clear. He's saying David spoke in Psalm chapter 16 about Jesus Christ. About, about the Christ. And um, uh, so, I don't know, this is probably one of those bright idea moments where Peter's preaching and, and he, you know, it's like, oh, he made the connection from one to the other, from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the situation that was at hand. He recognized that this was a very prophetic passage back in, action, in, in verse chapter 16 of Psalms, a very prophetic passage of Scripture, and he used it to convince the Jewish leaders that they did, in fact, crucify the Holy the Messiah, and that the, that the Messiah is risen as the scripture declares that he would be risen. So Peter is just saying, look, David, everybody everybody is is okay with David. All you Pharisees and you Jews, and you're all good with David. Do you remember what David said? He said that he would not suffer the Holy One to, speak, to, to, to uh, suffer in hell. So Peter's mind nailed the resurrection and nailed Peter's commitment to his own ministry as he would not, as he too would be resurrected. Basically, David... Peter is making the connection. If if Jesus Christ was resurrected, and David, David our patriarch, says, I will be resurrected, that means we who have the preservation will be resurrected. That's the promise that we can rest on. And Peter, he's preaching his promise to those people, you killed this guy, but that's okay, because he's, he's alive, and you could be alive too if you would just bend the knee to him. So verse 9, back in, in Psalm 16, he says, therefore my heart is glad and my, my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. So David's heart is glad. He's glorying and rejoicing. His flesh shall not rest. His flesh shall rest in hope for three reasons. Three reasons that you can rest in the hope of, of your salvation. First, it's an interesting thing. David is writing about something and Peter is making the connection. But if you remember what David what, what uh, Paul said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, that these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off or persuaded of them. You, when you look forward into your future today, you don't know everything that's going to happen, but you do know this. You know that you have eternal life, and you know that you will spend eternity with God in heaven. Amen. You know that. That's, you are looking afar off at a promise that is not yet fulfilled that promises that you will be in heaven. And David is saying the same thing. He says, you're not going to leave my soul in hell. He's not going to leave your soul in hell. You have, you have uh, completely that promise that you will not be left there. Second promise, or second reason for being assured of these promises, is that because in a spirit-led moment, David writes prophetically of Jesus Christ, his Lord, who will be preserved. Notice in verse, six, verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one. And notice that the word holy one is capitalized. Now David is not speaking of himself there. He said, you're not, he said, I know this God, I understand this, that thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, and neither will thou suffer thine holy one, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to see corruption. And because he won't see corruption, I won't see corruption. 
That's a promise that we have in eternal life. And then the third thing, and we're almost done. Well, let me, let, me, let me get back up here. Yeah, let's go ahead for the third thing because we're almost out of time. The third reason that he has this promise um, is what verse 11 says. Thou, sh- thou wilt show me the path of life. What is the path of life? The path of life is for this life through death was for a blink of an eye and into heaven through the rapture. So, uh, now David, you know, uh, Paul, and I don't remember what passage it says right now, I think it's in Philippians, where he says, absent, no, that's Corinthians, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So, I mean, he knows, now he, he, Paul doesn't even acknowledge that he will probably pass through, you know, the, or buy hell and keep right on trucking. Uh, and that's what David is talking about here. You, you know, there's fullness of joy, and at that right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And so David knows, and he has rest in this truth, that his soul will not forever be in hell. He, will, he, will, he has been shown the path of life, and he will find himself in the joyful presence of God, where there are pleasures forevermore. That's the promise that we have as well. So Psalm 16 is all about the promise of, of preservation, the, the request for it and, the, and the promise of. And so then, we'll, then over the next several weeks, we'll look at the power of preservation, the permanence of it, the justice of it, and then we'll defend it, and then we'll find, figure out how to rest in it. And so um, that's where we're going to go for the next few weeks while I um, get with God and try to figure out what, where he would like me to speak on next topically or a book study or something. So, Any, any questions? All right, let's pray and we'll out of here. Father in heaven, Lord, <clears throat> thank you for your son Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us. <clears throat> Thank you for the, uh, this passage. Even in the Old Testament, we can see the promise of eternal life and through preservation that you have preserved us both by, by the mighty God, by the, the, the justice and judgment of, of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Jehovah God, and then also um, in, uh, and we serve you as, as, as we're your, your servant, you're our, our master, and we thank you for all of that, that dimension we have in our relationship with you. We ask now, Lord, that you would... Uh, be with uh, our speaker this morning, Lord, as, uh, as Pastor Gary uh, brings the word. And uh, we just thank you for yesterday and everything that went on at the discipleship uh, luncheon. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. See you all later. Thanks for hanging out. <clears throat>